Now I invite you to kneel with me, if you can. Let's have a word of prayer uh, uh, before we have our uh, study here for this morning. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for this opportunity to come together. We thank you for the Holy Sabbath day that you provide each week that we can come together and not only rest from our labors, Lord, uh, and uh, that's not primarily what it was about. It's about um, um, gaining a spiritual experience with Thee and improving that experience and uh, getting a taste of heaven. And so we thank You so much, Lord, for Holy Sabbath Day and that You are our Creator God. We can contemplate uh, Your love in creating us and Your love in recreating us and wanting to. And so, Lord, we ask forgiveness for our sins and that uh, the Holy Spirit will wash us, that we indeed may be whiter than snow. And Father, we come before you also and petition on behalf of others, uh, our friend and church member in Battle Creek, Jerry. Um, she had a rough week. I talked to her last evening. She uh, really uh, had a lot of work to do this week, and we know also she's still grieving and the loss of her mother a few weeks ago. And uh, we pray that you'll be with her and comfort her and and uh, give her a rest, re-energize her. Uh, also news from Rollin that he's got a wisdom tooth that needs extracted. And Lord, you know <clears throat> you know our situations, and I trust that, uh, that you're going to bless Rollin, and that that will be taken care of. Uh, our own situation, Deb, you know, and uh, uh, wanting some clients, we trust you there as well. Um, and Lord, we praise you. We praise you for all the, the goodness uh, that you bestow upon us and the necessities of life. We praise you for our families, our children. I pray, Lord, you be with Jerome as he's a witness to his family, that the Holy Spirit will soften uh, the hearts of his children, that they may learn the ways of righteousness through his actions and words, and, and that his wife will come to know thee, and, and uh, uh, the whole family will be as one as you meant it to be. And we praise you, Lord, for all things, all things. You are our God, a merciful and loving God. And I humbly ask the Lord that you give me the words to speak this morning, uh, that they be words of truth and, uh, and comfort. And uh, Lord, this can be a tough subject when we talk about who and what the church is. Many people are confused. So we pray that the Spirit will remove the confusion and that we will be settled into the truth. Thank you so much for Jesus, His life and death for our, for our life, and uh, His ministry in heaven. May we aid Him in His work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, um, we have been studying what the Bible has to say about defining God's church, and we're looking at uh, ten primary characteristics. And in the past several months, we've covered a number of these. Now, there are more, uh, but uh, as I've studied them, um, these are the most prominent, I would say, characteristics of the true church of God, and all others build upon or fall, I'd say, within these characteristics. They all fit together. And that's something about God's Word, isn't it? It all fits together. If you find a contradiction in God's Word, well, it really isn't in God's Word. Now, there may be some translation issues, but there aren't contradictions, for God isn't a contradiction. The contradiction may be in our own prejudice or our own uh, misunderstanding of what God's Word says. And so, all these characteristics here, they fit together. They fall within these same attributes. I'll cover them just real quickly here. Uh, first, the, the church of God will have the nature of Christ. And what I mean by that is, it's going to be uh, uh, made up of individuals that are humanity and divinity combined, or, or born-again believers. See? And uh, they have Christ on the throne of their heart. Uh, the second thing, it's going to be a spiritual house. And Christ is going to be the head of that house. Okay? Not a man, but Christ. And not us, 
with Christ. Now there is gospel order. We'll get into organization and how the church is structured biblically, you know, the apostolic church, New Testament, and such. We'll get into that. Uh, the third thing, it's going to be of the spiritual seed of Abraham, not of Ishmael. If you go back and you look at that, you know, uh, Ishmael was of the flesh, in essence. If you look at it, and we covered that before. Uh, uh, Abraham was of faith, Ishmael was of the flesh, carnal. And there was that division there. Because um, he was, Ishmael was born uh, against God's wishes, in essence, see. They didn't uh, trust God by faith, you know, enough before they had Isaac. So, uh, and, and because of it's the spiritual seed of Abraham, they're going to be covenant keeping. In other words, they're going to keep the covenant. And the Sabbath is a sign of that covenant. And so the fourth characteristic, the church is a light that leads the way to the head, which we said was Christ. It's a light to the world. It's a shining city on a hill. That's what it's supposed to be. Uh, the fifth thing, it's going to have the gifts and bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And uh, this includes the testimony of Jesus, which the Bible defines as the spirit of prophecy. And we covered that the last three times, the three-parter, because that was pretty extensive. Um, it might have been four parts. Uh, the sixth thing is a stand upon the foundation of truth. That's what the Bible says. That the church is the ground and pillar of the truth, right? That's what it's going to stand upon. Especially present truth. And by study of prophecy, we know that the three angels' messages is our present truth. It's the last messages it declares before Jesus comes back. Okay. The seventh characteristic, it's going to have the faith of Jesus. Righteousness by faith. That's what that's speaking of. The eighth thing that goes along with that, they're going to keep the law of God. All ten commandments, remember? Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus, right? And the ninth thing, it's going to be vibrant or healthy and living in Christ. It's a true fellowship of believers. And the tenth thing, characteristic, they're going to have a godly love and unity. They're going to have a unity in doctrine and they're going to be organized for service. And so those are the ten, and you find some other attributes, but they tend to fall within uh, any one of these these ten here. Now we're going to take a closer look at number nine, the body of Christ, His church will be vibrant. And what I mean by that, they're physically and spiritually healthy as they live in Christ day to day. They will exemplify, and this is what I've entitled uh, this message, a vibrant Christian Fellowship. That's the idea, isn't it? That's what the Bible lays out. And I'll, I'll lay this out for you here. Spiritual health can lead to physical health. And physical health will aid in spiritual growth in Christ. Do you believe that? As you read the Gospels, you find that uh, Jesus was a healer of spiritual and physical illnesses and disease, wasn't he? Many times Jesus healed the physical ailments of the people and would tell them that it was their faith in God that made them whole. Is that right? You can't get away from the physical and the spiritual because we were created as not just physical beings, but spiritual beings. See? And one thing to realize, and I hope you realize this, uh, <clears throat> when you consider this, is that if you do not have Christ, if you do not have Jesus in your heart, you're not spiritually unhealthy, you're dead. Well, you may be physically alive, but spiritually, you're dead. Being spiritually dead leads to being physically dead. And I'm speaking of the second death. I'm speaking about eternal eternal death. And we can see this plainly by looking at probably the most quoted scriptures throughout the world. You know, John chapter 3, verse 16. Everybody knows John 3:16, don't they? Yeah. Virtually everybody in the world, even if they aren't Christian, they know John 3:16. Which makes you wonder, is there ever going to be an excuse for anyone? No. 
For God so loved the world that what? He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17. Most people stop at 16. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now when it says believe, it means a full heart commitment. It doesn't just mean you have the knowledge. That's important. But the knowledge has to be connected here. See? Because we are both physical and spiritual beings. That's how we were created. So the life of Jesus and the works of Jesus not only affected those He was helping, but was a witness to thousands of people in His time, and now billions in our time, of people that God is love. That was the witness. God is love, and by believing in Him, like I said, committing fully to Him, they are healed of sin and receive eternal life. In other words, they will live. They will live. John chapter 20. We're talking about Jesus here. Verse 30, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. You go through the Gospels and you read all the things that Jesus did, and John's saying, that's not even a splinter of everything that Jesus did. Can you imagine? You know what I find fascinating about that is that one day we're going to meet all these other people that haven't been written in the book where Jesus did things for them when he was here. (laughs) That's going to be incredible, isn't it? Verse 31, though, he says, But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have, what? Life, he says, through his name. And Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5. Verse 6, he says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. What's he mean by without strength? We were dead. We lived physically, carnally, not spiritually. See? For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, for us. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Because you see, when the Father looks at us, then He sees Jesus in us. And there is no wrath towards us. (laughs) This is what Paul's saying. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. It's a word. You break it up. At-one-ment. We, through Christ, have become one again with the Father. Remember the family again. Now we're going to look at the role of the church in the Day of Atonement in a few minutes later on towards the end of the study. But in order for us to be uh, spiritually healthy, we must first be among the spiritual living. Is that a fair statement? In other words, we must be born again believers in Christ and committed to Him above all things. And Jesus made this very plain in many different places in the Gospels. But I always uh, like... Uh, his statement to Nicodemus. I, I think it's probably one of the most clear about this. John 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, remember Nicodemus came out to see Jesus at night. He was pricked at heart. He had some questions asked Jesus and Jesus beat him to the punch, so to speak. Jesus read his heart, knew exactly what he needed. And he says to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So if you haven't been born again, of course Nicodemus says, well, how do you, you know, in a sarcastic way, well, how do you get back into your mother's womb? I mean, 
Jesus told him, I'm speaking spiritually here. I'm not speaking physically. And then Paul says in Romans 6 and verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, like that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in what? Newness of life. So we begin our spiritual walk then. See? We then are not just physical, but we're physical and spiritual. See? We are the human and the divine combined, born again. And when I say spiritual, I don't mean we are God, but we're spiritual. Because Jesus lives in us. That's what makes us spiritual. And so we begin our spiritual walk in that new life in Christ. We're adopted members of the family of God, which means we're members of His body, His church. Because remember, wherever Jesus is, there is His church. And if Jesus is in your heart, then you're a member of His church. (laughs) Whether you're physically with other believers or not. Now, there is a proper church order, like I've said, an organization. We're going to speak to that in later studies. But we become a member of the family. Remember, there's only two sides in this conflict. And as members of the church, we are to exhibit the characteristics of the head of the body. And we learn those characteristics how? By walking with Jesus. Each moment, the rest of our life on earth, and in fact, throughout all eternity, we're going to be growing in Christ. Notice the words of Jesus. I talk about this walking with the Lord. What is that? Notice what uh, Jesus says recorded in John 6 and verse 35. John 6, 35. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Is he talking about physically? Does that mean that uh, we're never going to get hungry? Or we're never physically going to get thirsty? That's not what he's talking about there, is it? It says, He that cometh to me, it's better rendered from the Greek as the one coming to me. That implies it's not just a single act of coming to Christ. You see. It's a consistent habit of life. He that comes to me. The one coming to me. And it actually uh, is in parallel with what he says there. He that believeth on me. It's the same thing. You know, coming to Christ can be accomplished only by faith. But you keep coming to Christ. You're walking to Him. When you start your day, you start it with Christ. When you end your day, you don't know if you're going to wake up the next day, you end it with Christ. Right? So just as we are in physical need of of bread and water to live, Jesus is telling us that we are also in spiritual need of bread and water to live. And he declares that he is that spiritual bread and water. Now notice that two things are given there, aren't they? The bread and the water. If we are to be vibrant, healthy Christians, we must have both bread and water that comes from Jesus. Coming to him daily, I can speak from experience and others can testify to this, it will completely satisfy our hunger and our thirst after righteousness, after doing the right things. And we're to have a consistent communion, in essence, with Christ if we're to grow closer to Him and, and by that to each other. You see, we're talking about fellowship here is one of the characteristics of the church. And without this daily meal of bread and water from Christ, we become weak and then ill, and eventually we would die. We would physically, wouldn't we? So will we spiritually. And we can lead others to death too. That's something that we need to consider. Because sin 
can be contagious. Do you believe that you can lead others into sin? Yes. But the church is a vibrant, healthy fellowship with Christ. It is dead without Him. Here's something from a devotional I read. It's called God's Amazing Grace. Speaking about this, it says, Spiritual life must be sustained by communion with Christ through His Word. The mind must dwell upon it. The heart must be filled with it. The Word of God laid up in the heart and sacredly cherished and obeyed through the power of the grace of Christ can make man right and keep him right. When His words of instructions have been received and have taken possession of us, Jesus is to us an abiding presence controlling our thoughts and ideas and actions. I ask, who better to control our thoughts, ideas, and actions than the Son of God? (laughs) I mean, doesn't that sound appealing? That sounds very appealing to me. I mean, are you... Tired of making wrong choices and doing the same sins again and again? You need a change in diet. You need the bread and water that Christ provides. And let me tell you, the diet that Jesus provides not only gives you life, but it will give you a more abundant life. Jesus said so himself. In John 10, He says, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life. And he could have stopped right there. But he didn't. Because some people, some people are are in certain situations where they're almost to a point where they would prefer death than just life. So if Jesus says, I come that they might have life, you you know what I'm saying? But he says, and that they might have it more abundantly, kind of perks somebody up. Well, maybe there is something better than life than in death. The Greek word for life in this verse is the Greek word zoe. Z-O-E. Very small Greek word. It's used here to mean eternal life. When Adam and Eve were created, they possessed Zoe. But lost it, didn't they, when they sinned. Now, true, their physical life was extended. That's by the grace of God. But they were no longer conditionally immortal. They were removed from the garden, from the tree of life. But Jesus came to restore Zoe. He came to restore eternal life, see? That life that Adam had forfeited. A more abundant life is what Jesus is talking about. It includes physical, includes the intellectual, includes the spiritual life. When we think of a physical life, it can be regarded as abundant in a body that's full of vigor and in perfect health. We've all seen people that are in, they appear to be in perfect physical health, don't they? Jesus' miracles of uh, physical healing gave an abundant physical life, you would say, to those whose life forces were declining. They were diseased. They were ill. But physical restoration was by no means the complete fulfillment of Christ's mission, was it? He didn't just come down here to heal us physically. Man also was created with an intellectual and a physical life. God gave us brains. We're not robots. And so, not only is it the physical life that God promises to make more abundant, but also the intellectual and the spiritual life. For it says, Man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8.3 And Jesus quoted that scripture to the devil, remember? When he was tempted. So, important as the physical and the intellectual aspects of a well-rounded life are, no life is fully complete unless the spiritual nature is nurtured. 
And it's nurtured each day by communing with Jesus. See? A daily communing with the Lord brings health to the body, both physically and spiritually, and intellectually. Also, not only just individually either, but as a church, which is a vibrant fellowship showing forth the life and works of Christ. That's what it's to be. There's a statement I've read before, and uh, we were talking about children, you know. The greatest education that a child can have is God's Word. You can learn your math skills, you can learn your, your reading skills, you can learn your writing skills. The fundamentals of life are in God's Word. If it's the only book that was available to anybody, there should be no fear. No fear that your child's going to be dumb, illiterate. Because you can learn it all in God's Word. The study of nature, God's first book of the Gospel. You know, it's amazing you listen to some, uh, quote, standards that our kids are to have today. You wonder, how did we ever make it this far? (laughs) Right? And so, here you're communing with God every day. You're eating that bread and drinking that water that He provides. Your sphere of influence will see Jesus in your life if you commune with Him. Do you believe that? That's why I was telling Jerome here. Your children watch you. I mean, I'm 50 years old, and there are some things that I do, and I go, my goodness, I'm turning into my dad. (laughs) I picked up those things from my dad. (laughs) And that's the way it is. But if they see Jesus in you, what is it that they will see? Believe it or not, there is something that the world cannot replicate in the life because it only originates with God and it's only exhibited in His people. In John 13, Jesus spoke of it. Verse 34 and 35. Notice what Jesus said to His disciples. Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye what? Love one another. As I have loved you. That's very important. Because it's a specific love that's being spoken of here. He says that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this, what? Our loving one another as Christ has loved us, all men Know that ye are my disciples if ye have loved one to another. By this shall all men know. The Greeks had three words, essentially. There were more. Believe me, there were many more. But essentially, the main types of love, the Greeks had three words to convey these ideas. We express in our one English word, love. There was a love that uh, the, the Greek word philene, in general, it describes a, a, a affectionate, uh, sentimental love. It's based on emotions and feelings. Then they had what was called aran. It denotes a passionate, sensual love. Love that is in the physical plane. Okay? Certain forms of infatuation can be uh, classed under that type of love. And by the way, the Greek word aran... E-R-A-N is not used in the New Testament at all. Just put that in the back of your mind. This physical plane of sensual love, you won't find it used in the New Testament, that particular word. And then there's the Greek word agapan. It adds principle to the feelings in such a way that principle controls the feelings. The higher intellect controls the lower. It brings into play, like I said, the higher powers of the mind and intelligence. Whereas Philene tends to make us love only those who who love us, Agapan extends love even to those who do not love us. See? Agapan is selfless, whereas Iran, that 
Physical love is purely selfish. And even Feline may at times be marred by some selfishness as well. Now, the noun form of agapan is agape. Maybe you've heard of that. Agape. And it is love in its highest and truest form. It implies reverence for God and respect for one another. We find that in God's commandments, don't we? The first four is our love to God. The next six is our love expressed to each other. See? And reverence and respect. Agape is a divine principle of thought and action that modifies our character. It governs all our impulses. Uh, It controls the passions. It ennobles our affections. And you know, this is probably, well, I'd say without a doubt, is the most important thing that we can have. This kind of love, agape. Because it originates with God. And if we have everything else, but we have not love, we don't have anything, do we? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that if you have all faith so that you can move mountains but do not have love, it's nothing. And Paul's not talking about sentimental love. He, as well as Jesus, is talking about agape. And the source I said before of agape is God. And when you have Jesus in your heart, agape springs forth because God is love. From the Signs of the Times, here's an article. <coughs> Excuse me. Speaking of this, it says wherever a soul is united to Christ, there is love. Whatever else the character may possess, it is valueless without love. Not love that is soft, weak, sentimental. Those are the other forms. Eran, Feline. She's talking here about agape, but such love as dwells in the heart of Christ. Without love, everything else profiteth nothing, for it cannot possibly represent Christ, who is love. You know, there are these uh, theories that go out and say, oh, Jesus married Mary Magdalene, you know. Jesus didn't exemplify this physical form of love. His was agape. He had Philemon love. That was a kind of an emotion. He had emotions. He wasn't a, you know, Motorized robot, or anything like that, you know. But they were in control. Agape, it combines them and keeps them in control. The higher powers of the mind are, you know, in control of those emotions. And that's only possible with the Holy Spirit abiding in our hearts. So, it's not Feline, and it's definitely not Iran, but Agape. So when Jesus says, Greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends, ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. He's talking about agape. When Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, he's talking about agape. Okay? And when we have agape, we will love all people as Jesus loved us. And that's what he was saying to his disciples, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. And so we'll love other people as Jesus loves other people. Right? As you were explaining to your wife. God loves all people. While we were yet sinners, we read. Christ died for us. That's love. And that's what he's speaking of here. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends, he laid down his life for his enemies. And so when we have that love, we will be constrained, constrained, constrained <laughs> to share that love with others. And, uh, uh, and when we have that love, we'll be a vibrant member of the body of Christ. Vibrant. Constrained. In other words, can't hold us back. And because of that, the church is vibrant in Christ. And it shows the world that we are His disciples. 
because we are His church. See? It'll draw believers into close bonds of love and godly fellowship. A vibrant fellowship of believers living in Christ, doing His works. It's all because we live in Christ and He lives in us. He is the vine, we are the branches. From the book Acts of the Apostles, page 37. The disciples prayed with intense earnestness for a fitness to meet men and in their daily intercourse to speak words that would lead sinners to Christ. Putting away all differences, all desire for the supremacy. See? Putting away those other forms of love by the Spirit. They were able to do it. They came close together in Christian fellowship. Close together. Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary primarily defines fellowship as this. Companionship. Society. Consort. Mutual association of persons on equal and friendly terms. It's a fellowship. Because of their love for the Lord Jesus Christ and their commitment to Him, they gave their heart unconditionally to Jesus. Agape drew them together in close Christian fellowship. And this is what the love of God does. It constrains us to love each other and to fellowship together. We've read Ephesians 4 many times in this series, defining God's church. Ephesians 4 and verse 4 says, There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There is one body of Christ. And the Holy Spirit leads all believers together into that body by filling their hearts with agape. Have you ever met a stranger, but it was a stranger in the Lord, and it seemed like through your fellowship with them that you've known them for a long time? I'm going to tell you that's agape. <laughs> that's the Holy Spirit. I used to say, uh, devil back me up on this, I used to say, that's a Holy Spirit thing. Because <laughs> we, we would go to meetings or a camp meeting and, and we come back, we, we'd meet certain people, we'd come back and say, that's like we've known those people all our lives and we just met them. And I'd say, that's a Holy Spirit thing. I don't know how else to describe it. It's a Holy Spirit thing. There's one body of Christ. <clears throat> See? Speaking of fellowship, I'll tell you what, I encourage you to do a study on fellowship uh, in the Word of God. It'll be very enlightening. I'm just going to touch on some things. But you think God created all heaven, all the angels, and there was it was for some other need other than fellowship? Well, of course there are other needs, but that they never met together, that they never... What's a family do? You have children and you put them in different rooms and you never see each other? It's all about love, isn't it? And fellowship. Being together. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, it says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. That would be that agape. That love provoke unto agape into good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. What? Not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. There's a principle here. As the manner of some is. But exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully. This is what some people miss. For if we sin willfully, how do we sin willfully? If we are forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, it can lead to us uh, sinning willfully. Or we might be sinning willfully and that guilt is keeping us from assembling together. You see? He says, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. The word assembling in this verse refers to Christian gatherings for the purpose of worship, uh, uh, mutual encouragement. 
And if you read the New Testament church in that time, those times, uh, uh, the, these worship and, and sessions where they fellowship together were held in homes of the believers. There's nothing against having a church building. Don't get me wrong. But there's nothing wrong with worshiping in your home. You read about this, some of these words here that were spoken here by Paul. He said, you know, there, there were some members who were neglecting to fellowship with their brethren uh, uh, for worship and devotion, and that was to their own detriment, really. You know, And they were going against the counsel of, of verse 24 to encourage their fellow believers in love and good works. The devil would have us not come together. Have you ever heard divide and conquer? <laughs> That's a real principle. God calls His people to assemble together in Christian fellowship for worship, for instruction, for encouragement, for prayer, for many things. If someone is not attending fellowship, it could very well mean that they're experiencing a spiritual conflict of some sort. And they need, this is the thing, they need the encouragement that good Christian fellowship is to bring. But the devil tries to keep them away. Guilt plays a role in that too. We all need that bonding and encouragement that comes from the body of Christ, don't we? To help us fight a good battle of faith. In fact, the scriptures say, really the scriptures say it's a command to assemble together, especially on the Sabbath for worship. I mean, I think about this and I, I think, why would one, you know, why would a person not want to join together with the household of faith to worship God together? if at all possible. I know there are certain uh, circumstances that can make it difficult. Distance, you know, illness, uh, some of the elderly, they're shut in. Uh, maybe there's no faithful church of like-minded believers that's close, you know, um, etc. There, there are situations, you know. And that's okay, because God knows our circumstances. But if you can't attend, uh, you are to attend church on the Sabbath. And that's what Hebrews 10 is saying. And like I, I in my mind, I'm like, we, we had a lady, <clears throat> uh, uh, in fact, part of the charter membership of the church in Battle Creek. She drove down here one entire summer, every Sabbath, from Battle Creek to worship. Now, you may think she's crazy for doing that. I don't. You know, it just, each one has to make that decision in their own mind what they can do, what they can't do. And like I said, God understands circumstances. That's one of the reasons why we started broadcasting our services over the internet. was for people who just can't, there's no place for them to go. Well, at least they can hear a message. You know, attend kind of, you know, virtual church, sort of, you know. <clears throat> but it's very, very important. God thinks it's important. I mean, God made a day to fellowship with us. We're going to stand up God? I mean, that's a serious thing to think about. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, says, The religion you profess makes it as much your duty to employ your time during the six working days as to attend church on the Sabbath. Think of it that way. What's the most important thing in your life? Is it your job? Or is it God? Are you going to live your profession or not? Something seriously to think about. We assemble ourselves together on the Holy Sabbath day to worship the Creator God, to rest from our battles with temptation and sin, to encourage one another. That's why I like praise reports so much. It encourages me. And beloved, that is one thing that the Sabbath is for, to provoke each other unto love and good works. We read there in Hebrews 10. To exhort one another. Ultimately, if you think about it, the Sabbath is a gift for fellowship from a loving God. 
It is a blessed day to fellowship together with our God and gain the blessings that He's promised to, to bestow upon His family. We can get a taste of heaven on the Sabbath that we can't get on any other day. Because God promises to be with us specifically on this day. Just like an anniversary day. Just like your birthday. You could go through legal ramifications and change it if you want, but it ain't going to change the fact. You were born on that particular day, at that particular time. You were married on such a day. God sanctified the seventh day. Boom! You can say you change it, but it doesn't change the fact that God did it on this day. And He did it because He wants us to remember. How does the fourth commandment start? Remember. Remember I am your Creator God. Remember all the good things. And He wants to be with us. He wants our fellowship. Isn't that a remarkable thing? <clears throat> we go back to Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> and on the seventh day, God ended His work, which He had made. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work, which He had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. That means He set it apart as holy sacred, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. So I'm reading that and I see God rested on the Sabbath. God rested on the Sabbath. That is an incredible thought just by itself. God rested. Contemplate that sometime. God rested. God that holds worlds into <laughs> rested. Why did God rest? I mean, was he tired and he needed to rest? I mean, after all, six days he he spoke things come into existence. That's very tiring, isn't it? No. God didn't rest because he needed it. God's rest was the result not of exhaustion or fatigue but a finishing of creation. He could have no higher reason for enjoining upon us rest on the seventh day than that by so resting we will enjoy the opportunity, and it is an opportunity, of reflecting upon the love and goodness of our Creator. And by doing that, by beholding, we become changed. We become like Him. And we can cry out, Abba, Father. The Sabbath is a day that God sanctified to make us holy. As God worked through six days and rested on the seventh, so man should toil through six days, if you can, if you choose to. It's not a commandment that you must work six days. But you have an opportunity to work those six days, right? Some people get confused by that. But there is a commandment to rest on the seventh. It calls for abstention from common bodily labor and for the devotion of mind and heart to holy, sacred things. You know, some people, they take it as a day and they, they sleep till noon or whatever, you know, and they, just, they don't do anything. That's not what it's about either. The command to cease from work or to rest from work is not considered merely in terms of ceasing from work. It is holy rest. It's which we commune with God. There is fellowship with God. Contemplate that for a while. That's an incredible thought too. God rested and we fellowship with God. Testimonies for the church again. God gives it, the Sabbath to man, as a day in which he may rest from labor and devote himself to worship and the improvement of his spiritual condition. So the Sabbath day is meant to spend with the only one who can improve our spiritual condition. 
He created it for just such a purpose. And as I said, God loves us and He wants our fellowship. Now let me give you some scriptures. When Adam and Eve chose to sin, they hid themselves from God, didn't they? They no longer wanted to fellowship with God. That's what sin does. Sin separates us from God. We choose to separate ourselves from God. But you know something? God still wants to fellowship with us. We read in Genesis 3, 8. Remember, Adam and Eve had sinned. They clothed themselves with their own coverings. They hid from God. It says in verse 8, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What's that tell us? That says that God came looking for Adam and Eve. Because he loved them and he wanted it to improve their spiritual condition. God wanted to fellowship with them and he searched them out. They were hiding. God created us, friends, to be social beings that loved each other as he loves us. He wanted us to fellowship with each other in his presence. He wants to be involved in that. What is it, most people, and I know that people are different, they have different makeup, and different character traits and such, but most people enjoy coming together, even the world. Look at the world. Look at infidels. They love to come together and party, don't they? Now they have different physical, you know, Aaron uh, uh, motivations for that, or Feline motivations, you know. Not godly motivations. But they love to come together. Most people like to come together in a group to have a good time, to socialize, to, you know. We were created that way. We were created as social beings. God created Adam, and Adam noticed that all the animals had a mate, but he didn't. God made him a mate and said, be fruitful and multiply. God had a family in heaven, didn't He? All the created beings. That's His family. It's the family of God. They come together. Not just to worship God, but though in worshiping God, they are fellowshipping together. Exodus 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God wants to fellowship with us. Matthew 1, verse 23. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God alone and by himself. Is that what it means? God with who? Us. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 John 1, 3, 4. 3 and 4. This is our scripture readings. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. That you'll be in our family. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. There is joy in fellowship. And he who truly knows Christ will always want others to share in that blessed companionship of the Father in heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ. And when we fellowship together in such a presence, friends, our joy will indeed be full. First John 1 John 1.7, go down three more verses. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. You see that? If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we're going to have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. <laughs> it's a Holy Spirit thing. Isn't it? So if we walk in the light, we walk with God. And from the light, uh, and from God is from who you know, light comes from. Remember, creation, He said, let there be light. My presence. <laughs> As Deb's talking about. We'll have fellowship not only with God, but also with all others who are following the Lord. 
serving the same God, believing the same truths, following uh, the same instructions on the pathway of eternal life. We cannot fail to walk in unity because we all worship the same God and He's alive in our hearts and He's implanted us with agape. And so, friends, we cannot be anything but a vibrant, spiritually healthy fellowship of believers filled with the love of God and sharing that with all around. Because Jesus is alive in us. Now I'll tell you, if we are unwilling to come together in good Christian fellowship, then we are spiritually ill or we may be spiritually dead. And let me tell you that a church that has Jesus at the head will not be a dead church. Our God is not the God of the dead, right? but of the living. And some are really confused about this subject of who and what is God's church and they'll stay in a, a spiritually dead uh, uh, church organization until their, until their own spiritual life dies. Thinking that by staying in membership they will not partake of the plagues. Because my name's on the church books. Just as the Jews thought... God would perform a miracle to save Jerusalem from the destruction of the Romans, no matter their spiritual condition. Now friends, I tell you, don't be deceived. The only membership book that really matters is the Lamb's Book of Life. So many people are confused and they think that they must patiently condone sin in the ranks because the wheat and the tares grow together without realizing that open sinners will lead all to sin. And they'll become an abomination to God. They'll become lukewarm. Jesus says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. It's true that tares have been sowed among the wheat, but the wheat cannot differentiate the difference completely. So God says, don't remove them. That's completely different than someone who is in shameless open sin and rebellion. Light and darkness cannot be together. Jesus said in Matthew 12, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. And I'll talk more about the tares, the foolish virgins, the Laodiceans in a future lesson because there's a complete misunderstanding I find over and over and over among God's people about whom they are and their relationship to the church militant which is what the church is today. It's called the church militant. It's not the church triumphant because the church hasn't been washed clean of the tares yet. But God's church will be a living church. It will be a healthy church. It will be a fellowship of those who love God, who bring glory to Him. It will be a church that deals with sin as it's supposed to be dealt with. As a people who are living in the time of the judgment. And as such, there are certain characteristics of the church in our time that will be manifest among its members, showing the true fellowship of believers from the false. And I'm speaking about the time we're living in. The judgment hour. I mean, I've thought about this. How can a church profess to be God's people and yet deny the very truth that shows it to be the remnant? I just That's the devil. That's the devil turning things that are, calling things that are black, white, and white, black. Things that are good, evil, and evil, good. I'll go through these quickly. Revelation 14 and 7 says, the first angel's message, says, Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him. See? That made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. In 1844, and I don't have time to go through all the prophecy for those who are unfamiliar. But in 1844, the great court from whom there is no appeal convened in the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus and His Father left the first compartment. They entered into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, to begin the investigative judgment. What does that mean for us? And what is 
the importance of it for those who live today in the end times. means quite a lot, doesn't it? God expected His ancient people to serve Him faithfully every day in the year, didn't He? And He accepted their services. But when the Day of Atonement came, and, and that's just another way of saying the Day of Judgment, when the Day of Atonement came, there were special requirements laid upon them during that day. And if they failed to observe those requirements, they were cut off from the people of Israel and they lost their eternal life. That's the day of judgment, see? God has accepted the service of His people down through the ages. But when the anti-typical day of atonement arrived, because what the day of atonement on this earth was a shadow of what was happening in heaven, in the sanctuary in heaven. It arrived in the year 1844. And the investigative judgment opened in the heavenly sanctuary. The books were opened. God began the judgment. It started with the, those who had died. From Adam on. God expects the antitypical congregation, His church on earth, to fulfill their part of the antitype just as fully as Christ, our high priest, fulfills His part in heaven. And so God requires special services of His people, His church now, during this time of judgment. He requires a personal work from each of us. And so that means the church. And those who live in the investigative judgment are counted worthy who are accounted worthy, you know, we're going to live during the plagues. We're going to live during a time without a mediator. Their experience will be different from that of any other company that's ever lived on the earth. And when Revelation uh, talks about the 144,000, that's, that's what that symbolizes, those people that lived during that time. So God's church will be a spiritually healthy church fellowshipping together in preparation for His second coming, readying themselves and others to see Jesus face to face. That's what our mission is, isn't it? A church that denies the sanctuary message and thus the investigative judgment and thus the first angel's message because it talks about the investigative judgment and thus if you deny the first angel's message you deny the second and third. It falls right in line. That is not the remnant church of prophecy. So please consider my statement very carefully. I don't want you to be deceived, see. From the book, The Great Controversy, page 488. The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. All need a knowledge for themselves of the position and work for their, of their great high priest. Otherwise, it will be impossible for them to exercise the faith which is essential at this time or to occupy the position which God designs them to fill. There's a statement in Matthew 24. It says, if it were possible, these miracles and the workings of Satan would deceive the very elect. Now, we as human beings, our first reaction is, well, it ain't going to deceive me. Really? If we're not in Christ, if we don't understand what our high priest is doing today, I shudder. Because <laughs> indeed, we will be deceived. I think I'm going to stop there. I'm running over my time. And uh, maybe we'll get to this um, next Sabbath because I got quite a bit to share yet. <laughs> I'm working on some uh, studies. One of my goals here is to, to get into, um, maybe I can do it during Sabbath school for a series or do a midweek service or something and more of a study into the sanctuary. But uh, if you think of that, that's a gripping statement. Because if we wish to have the faith we need for this time or to occupy the position God has for us, we must clearly understand the subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment. <laughs> and there were certain requirements, like I said. 
I'll just read Leviticus 23. That will give you a wet your whistle here. Verse 27 and 28 tells us, gives us four things. It says, Also on the tenth day of the seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. That's the day of judgment. It shall be a holy convocation unto you. That's the first thing. It's going to be a holy convocation. That means you come together. It's a sacred con- uh, convocation. You're to attend. And ye shall afflict your souls. There's the second thing. You're to afflict your souls. And offer an offering made by fire. There's the third thing. Unto the Lord. And ye shall do no work in that same day. There's the fourth thing. For it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. So friends, there are four things that the Lord laid out in the typical day of atonement. We're in the anti-typical so the church has those four things, and I'll get to them next time we're together. Let's bow our heads and let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we again thank you so much for the Holy Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God that created us as social beings to be in fellowship with you. And we're very thankful that you created us to socialize in fellowship with us. And so, Lord, we understand now that the Sabbath is a day Uh, one of many different days, but the day of each week that we are to come together to worship Thee, if at all possible, to fellowship with one another and uh, to gain a taste of heaven, a taste of the family, uh, be a member of the family and taste what it's like to be a member of the family for one day, very, very soon, Jesus is going to come back and reunite all the family together. We look forward to that day and we pray, Lord, that we will be found faithful uh, when He does come. For we do want to fellowship with thee, we pray in Jesus' name.